This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. It was a maddening and seductive paradox. The more I learned about Buster Keaton, the less I understood him. So Dana Stevens recounts in her biography of Buster Keaton, Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century, out January of this year from Simon & Schuster. Cameraman follows the life and times of vaudeville star turned silent film actor, director, stuntman into his artistic heyday in the 1920s through the professional and personal travails that followed, including the decline of independent film production and Keaton's own struggles with alcohol. But that's just his life, and Stephen's book is just as much about his times, about the modernity that Keaton shaped and exemplified, and about the many stories that we can tell through this stone-faced risk-taker. The more I read of Cameraman, the more I understood uh, and learned about him, so there's no paradox there. I'm Annie Burke, and I'm sitting down with the author, Dana Stevens. Thank you, Dana, for coming to discuss your wonderful book. I'm I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, I thought you could just introduce yourself and tell us how you came to be a film historian and critic. Well, I mean, I don't think of myself as a film historian. It's still a strange hat to wear. Um, And the entire time I was writing this book was thinking, am I going to be able to convince people that I actually am a film historian? (laughs) Because by profession and I guess training or at least apprenticeship, I'm a critic, a movie critic at Slate and have been doing that for about 16 years. I've been writing for Slate for a little bit longer, but specifically have been their film critic for 16 years. Uh, And my background is... um, it's academic, but not in the area of film. Uh, I studied comparative literature. So yeah, the trajectory by which I went from um, you know being a lover of Keaton's work and of silent film to being somebody who was writing about it was a long trajectory. It was about 25 years or so from when I sort of first fell for Buster Keaton's work, which I describe in the introduction to the book, until this book was finished. But only for about the last five of those 25 years was I actively writing it. I also talk about all of this stuff in the introduction, so I won't re-say it all. But yeah, essentially the, the story of the writing of this book is me going from being an amateur fan to, you know, in my mind, posing as a film historian, but I'm glad that I managed to, to make it work. Yes, certainly. You pull it off. Um, well, I see sort of two two threads in your answer, which is the first of what it meant to you to write a book after being sort of a short and long form critic for so many years at Slate, as well as being a podcaster, where you wrote about movies you loved, movies you didn't love, just sort of covering the spectrum of of um, Hollywood and independent and foreign uh production to like really writing about something that was very personal to you uh, and also writing about something in a, in a much longer form. So did this book project find you or did you decide it was time to write a book? That is a great question. And it's actually more the latter. And I hope that doesn't make me sound less impassioned about the project because when I landed on it, it was clear to me that this was the project. But I wanted to write a book before I knew that it was this one, certainly. And that was actually connected to having been a critic at Slate for all those years and covering, as you say, whatever was being released at that moment on the world cinema market. And there was this moment in 2015 where I don't know if you remember this, but where Marvel rolled out its its slate for the next 10 years. <laughs> and I just remember this, it was sort of being passed around by, by critics on Twitter and laughed at, but I was actually quite depressed by it. There was this kind of spreadsheet style grid of all the projected big Marvel superhero blockbusters for the next 10 years, right? Going up to 2025, which seemed so incredibly far away at that point. And it would just have slot fillers. Like in some years it would say something like 2023, untitled Ant-Man movie or something like that. And 
And, uh, you know, without even getting into sort of, you know, talking about Marvel and the contemporary film industry, I all I know is that at that moment, I sort of saw my future as a writer shut down before my eyes and thought, like, is this my whole horizon and my whole scope for being a film writer that I will just write on whatever Marvel chooses to release for the next 10 years? And I just felt brought down by it. But it ended up being a productive depression because it brought about this sense that I wanted to, for one thing, go back in time. You know, I wanted to be able to revisit some part of film history that I loved and not have to worry about the current contemporary release market. Uh, and and also that I wanted to stretch as a writer and just try to do something different and see see where my writing could go if I wasn't writing, you know, thousand word long nuggets on the latest releases. Well, first of all, I don't think anyone would judge you for wanting to write a book. Many of our listeners are academics and it's not as though most third-year graduate students are suddenly struck with the desire to write, you know, a 300-page academic treatise. It's just a rite of passage like the dissertation. So no one, no listener here is going to feel the project is less impassioned for that reason. And I, I think that your, your anecdote about Marvel is really funny, and it makes me picture you, like, as Buster Keaton, like, having that house fall down around you, but you just <laughs> are in the window frame, like, oh, 10 years of TBD Marvel phase zillion phase four um so then the other piece of it was sort of uh without you know giving away maybe too much i wanted to talk about what like you know how or why you became um a devotee an expert on buster keaton what you call like wearing the white rose of keaton over the red rose of charlie chaplin um and i think that debate as you as as we'll talk about your book sort of cracks that binary open because there are so many other um, wonderful, talented, underrated silent film stars that um, that you're that you explore. Uh, so it's not only Keaton and Chaplin or Keaton and Chaplin and Lloyd. Um, but it does seem like sort of the the cinephile community does have that kind of divide between the Keatons and the and the Chaplins. Yeah. And to me, that's really not interesting. I mean, this is part for me of being also a critic who doesn't like ranking movies when I make my top 10 list, which is, you know, something that every critic does as a rite of passage each year. I don't rank them and I refuse to rank them because making a list is hard enough. The idea of putting something in numerical order of how much you love it or appreciate it just seems like violence to me and I can't bring myself to do it. And I guess I feel somewhat similar about this really fairly artificial rivalry between Keaton and Chaplin. It certainly didn't exist in their time. Right. I mean, you didn't choose which side you were on. And, and Chaplin was incomparably more famous and more successful than Keaton or than any other silent comedian. Um, and I think that, that that kind of rivalry emerged later on in kind of a cinephile community. Right. After both of them were gone, probably in the in the 70s, 80s. That phrase about the white rose and the red rose is actually not mine. It comes from Adam Gopnik, and I think he uses it in his review of, of the book in The New Yorker. Um, and I just I thought it was a, a lovely image because it sort of shows uh, a, a comradeship with one or the other rather than than taking sides. You know, um, to me, Keaton is the more interesting artist, obviously. I just wrote a 400 page book about him. He was the one who who moved me and struck me more. But there is a whole chapter about the two of them, about Keaton and Chaplin, not as rivals, but as collaborators in the movie Limelight, which is the only time they appeared together, uh, either on stage or on film or anywhere. Chaplin's movie from 1952. And there's some incredible backstories about Limelight that I started to discover as I was researching it. So even though I don't love the movie Limelight, I found that there was a lot to say about it in terms of, you know, the historical moment that it appeared at and the crisscrossing of these two great comics careers uh, just for that moment. Absolutely. Well, um, I think I think you're fair to say the rivalry is, is very artificial. Uh, they both have their strengths as performers and have their own sort of personas that you may or may not resonate with. But I will I will say that just based on what I learned about both of them, uh, Keaton and his love of television definitely makes me the, like makes him the one I'd want to hang out with. Like, <laughs> um, like gotta love Chaplin, but he, I would be ashamed to tell him like what I'm, what I'm doing on the average weekend night, be like, I'm watching TV, Charlie, what do you want? Um, let's talk about your book, uh, the scope and sort of the structure of your book, because it's not the typical sort of, uh, biography or even the sort of celebrity biography, because it's really a history of the entire 20th century oriented around, uh, and told through the figure of Buster Keaton. So can you tell us about sort of how that how that came to be, like, was that the angle that you knew you were going to pursue when you started writing or did it come to you as you were working? 
I think that I always knew that it, it would be an unusually structured book. I mean, I was never interested in writing, and I don't honestly feel like I'm capable of writing a traditional biography. It seems like a very thankless task to me. I'm very thankful that there are biographers, and there's nothing I love to read more than a good show business biography. But I was not interested in that exhaustive task of being the new Keaton biographer. In fact, there is another writer, James Curtis, who is the new Keaton biographer and who completely, by coincidence, was writing a book at the same time and more or less the same pace as me. And he has a brand new doorstop Keaton biography that just came out, which I just started reading. Uh, but that was not what I wanted to take on at all. Uh, both because, as I say, you, in, to some degree, that is, that's a, a thankless task, right? I mean, you're, you're publishing sort of the most authoritative, the most fact-finding work that's yet been published on that person, or you're trying to do that. And then some period of time later, you're supplanted by someone else who's trying to do the same thing, you know? And I think what interested me in, in Keaton's life was always its intersections with other lives and other stories of his time. Uh, so I went in knowing that it was going to be unusually structured and that it would zigzag through history and take the lens closer in and further out from his life. I didn't know going in exactly where those perspective shifts would happen. That happened kind of as I was researching along, if you see what I mean. And if that's confusing, I'll just clarify to people who have not read the book that what this book does to some degree is is take Keaton's life and um, and place it in all kinds of different frames, right? So when I'm talking about his childhood on the stage uh, in what was known as the most violent act in vaudeville, a family act with his parents, I talk about child abuse law and child labor law at the turn of the century and sort of ask the larger questions about what did it mean to be a child performer in a violent act on stage at the turn of the century as he was. And as I move through his life, I try to find different frames in which to put the things that he was creating, experiencing, et cetera. And it just kept on surprising me how rich um, that that practice could be, you know, that way of looking at a life. And I don't think that's only true for Keaton. I think that's a, that is a way that I like to read biographies um, myself in my life. For example, a book that really influenced the structure of this book and that I feel like more people should know about, I like to evangelize about this book, is River of Shadows by Rebecca Solnit. Are you familiar with that book? I'm familiar with the author, but I don't know that book, no. It's my favorite of her books. It's great. It's about uh, Edward Meebridge, who's the photographer who, you know, photographed the running horse in, it was the 1870s. And, you know, this this famous series of photographs trying to prove that the horse's hooves would all leave the ground at once during a run. And that those sort of developed into early film. And he's often cited as kind of one of the ancestors of, of film, um, but she takes his life and, and looks at all the incredible things that happened to, to Meebridge during his life. You know, he was involved in a murder trial and he, you know, was an immigrant who changed his identity and he photographed the the railroads as they were extending across the West. And she sort of takes Meebridge's life and turns it into this kind of allegory. And it's a gorgeous book. Anyway, that book isn't like mine, but it sort of freed me up to do something like, like I try to do in mine. That's fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading that next. Um, I mean, your book, it's like a lot of biographies are about the what, and I do love a good tell-all, as, as you were mentioning. I like a biography. I'll go further. I like a gossipy <laughs> tell-all. But um, your book is really about the why in certain ways, like the why project of the biography, which I think is, is very wise. But I also thought about the how, because there were parts of your book where I just wondered how you synthesized, and I'm, I mean this, impress, I'm impressed, but also like just... I really want to ask you um, how you found certain things or how you've put them together. So for example, you talk about Childs, this um, like eatery, this uh, chain of eateries that Keaton was at when he, you know, was just starting up. And then you mentioned that Childs is featured in um, different films. And I was wondering just sort of, was this a process for you when you were writing that you're sort of accumulating references and keeping notes or did you go on a deep dive to find out about childs? Just there was sort of an encyclopedic quality to your to your writing where I thought like, how did she know that? How did she know about where childs is and everything? Stuff like, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I'm laughing at, did you go on a deep dive about childs? I, I went. Mean, I most, would. No, I think that'd I, be interesting. It was, it was fantastically interesting, but that was in particular that chapter, which is about a pancake house and a chain of pancake houses. And the connection with Keaton is simply that in one story that he told to his biographer about a pivotal day in his life, essentially the day that he, you know, made, stepped onto his first film set and moved from being 
a, a stage performer to a film performer in 1917, he had breakfast at Child's. And he mentions that name. And that sent me down this Child's rabbit hole. And there was this long period, Annie, where I could not escape my obsession with the Pancake House. And, and I just kept thinking, I'm going to send this to my editor and he's going to say, this should be whittled down to one paragraph. Yep, yeah. <laughs> right. And I really thought you've truly gone off the deep end now. But everything I kept reading about this, this Pancake House seemed like it had to do with the things that I was trying to investigate with, you know, modernity and, you know, the way that the, the country was changing in the first quarter of the 20th century. It was essentially the first fast food chain in the United States, which, you know, given that how at the front we have been of, you know, industrialization and mass production, it really made us made it one of the first chains in the world. And that all seemed like it had to do with Keaton's story. And I'm just so happy that people like that chapter and think it belongs in there, because to me, it's sort of like, if you make it through the pancake chapter, the di digressiveness of that, and you still feel like I'm learning something about this period and about this person and about this this slice of history, then, um, then maybe it wasn't a complete waste that I spent, I mean, weeks, if not months, you know, trying to learn everything I could about a defunct pancake chain. No, I, I, I loved that part, but I really, I think that is one way that I personally connect through histories. I'm always wondering like, what were they eating? <laughs> like, I'm just finishing my own research project and thinking about like, when she went to the meeting, do you think there were cookies? How would I find out what kinds of cookies were served? Um, I haven't figured that out yet. So, yeah, it's material history, and, and I'm yeah. very interested in it, it to, in that kind of history, history that really gives you the sensory details of what it was like to be in that time. I was just, I was curious because I thought that if you weren't doing a deep dive, then you were like keeping notes of just everything around you that you were finding, you know, like that you were having like a sort of that kind of beautiful mind, things lighting up around you, like here's Childs and here's Childs. Um, but maybe it's a combination of discovering and pursuing avidly. That's that's what it's like. Um, but uh, something else you talk about that maybe is a little bit more expected in line with like a, a Hollywood biography would be sort of looking at the personalities within um, early or I should say silent film independent production. And I want to talk about uh, Roscoe, known as Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Norman. These are two fellow actor filmmaker hyphenates um, who I would say are less known outside of a film studies context um, because they had sort of careers that were cut short for different reasons and that would have maybe been in that pantheon of the great silent film makers sort of for the general public and not for sort of early early film experts had things gone differently. Can you talk a little bit about Arbuckle and Norman and their relationship to Keaton? Sure. Well, each of them gets a chapter. There's a chapter for Roscoe Arbuckle and a, a chapter that's more about women in, in the 1910s and film in general, but focusing on Mabel Normand. And I mean, really, I, I wanted them in there. I mean, Arbuckle is always going to be in a Keaton biography, of course, because they he got his start. Keaton did working with Arbuckle Studio and they were close friends. And, you know, Arbuckle's a big figure in his life. Uh, Normand was not, I think, particularly close to him, although I'm sure they knew each other socially. But she, to me, had to be in there because she's she's the missing piece in so many histories of that time, you know, and, and in general, the fact that, that women had this moment of real power in the film industry in the 1910s that started to end right around the time that Keaton entered it, you know, obviously no co direct causation, but you can kind of trace the moment that film goes from being a, a wild West kind of endeavor that all kinds of people were trying their hand at, including women, uh, to a big business that, you know, men were starting to take over. And that happens right around that time, the late, late teens and early twenties. Um, so she belonged in there to me just because that's a part of film history that's never told. And, uh, and there's so many great stories there. The story of her directing Chaplin, for example, at, at Keystone, which is where he got his start in movies and, you know, him sitting down on set and refusing to work, refusing to, to do what she asked because she was a woman, essentially. He didn't he didn't respect her enough to take her direction. That just seemed like a story that had to be told. I mean, Chaplin tells that story himself in his autobiography, and it's so self-incriminating. It makes him look terrible. And he doesn't even 50 years later writing the story down. He, he has no idea how terrible it makes him look. So that was something I wanted to dig into in her chapter. Uh, and in just in general, I was so moved by the work of Mabel Normand. I mean, she was a great discovery for me in researching the book. I knew who she was already, but, you know, had not really d dove into her filmography. And there's so many of her films that survive. She's so funny. You know, she also directed herself and directed others and was a real force at Keystone. Um, and so that was all great to investigate. 
And Roscoe Arbuckle, I mean, I, I wanted to give him his due in part just because he's been so disserved by film film history, you know, and is, is mainly remembered for the scandal associated with his name, uh, which I don't get into in great detail in the book because it was very legally complicated and I didn't want to go down every one of those avenues. But, you know, essentially there was a trial for rape and manslaughter for a young woman who died at a party that he was throwing at a hotel in San Francisco. And, you know, after now decades and decades of kind of investigation of this trial and this case, it seems like there was no rape. There was no murder. You know, the young woman died of pre-existing causes a few days after the party. And he was railroaded in a series of kangaroo trials and his career was ruined. So the whole story is tragic in all senses for the young woman, for Arbuckle, and really for film history, because he was a figure who was up and coming. He was not quite as popular as Chaplin, but more popular than than Buster Keaton for those years that he was making films with him. And, you know, was just a real creative force in the industry. And it's it's just it's 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 sad to see that in history, even up until recent history, when for example, during the the Me Too movement of a few years ago, the beginning of the Me Too movement, you would see vague references to the case thrown around as if they were references to, you know, Me Too moments in early Hollywood. So it was almost like this, these these myths, these false myths about Arbuckle had been folded into film history and just are used as a referent now, even down to his name. You know, it, it hurts me to hear him called Fatty in um, in references to him in film history because it wasn't his name and it wasn't the name he used in his private life or liked to be called. I don't think he even chose it as a performing name. It was essentially, you know, an insult that became a character name and that has now become his historical tag. So I guess I was just trying to rescue from history, you know, what a what a talented director he was, what a good friend he was to Keaton, and how sad it was that his life ended as soon as and as sadly as it did. Yeah, and I really felt when I was reading about them that they um, both had this deep sadness or trouble that Keaton shared, but that Keaton managed to be the one. He he managed to sort of have a turnaround, as we'll talk about. Um, but that, like, they these are the reasons why careers end. It's a combination of sort of outside and inter- and sort of the trouble coming from inside the buildings. Mabel Normant was um, very ill. I think she was an alcoholic, you mentioned. Well, she, right? yeah, she had some, she had all kinds of addiction problems that are somewhat unclear and that are also wrapped in, in layers of myth. But yeah, she had TB for many years and was wasting away in a way because of that, but also apparently was addicted to cough syrup. I mean, she was, she was just a messed up. I mean, I call her in the book sort of the Marilyn Monroe of the silent era. You know, she had a similar damaged and vulnerable quality and also had, um, you know, inspired a similar desire to, to rescue her, you know, on the, on the, on the behalf of her audiences. And she was a very beloved figure. It sort of just feels like your, your history sometimes is structured almost like a novel. Like these figures are foreshadowing what might happen to Buster Keaton, these kind of like mirror images or um, different paths that happen to these stars uh, in this, as you can say, this kind of Wild West moment of Hollywood uh, pre, pre-studio pre uh, studio era. Um, and one of the films that you talk about that they that sort of was being worked on uh, or one of Keaton's earliest films is called One Week. Uh, it's only 19 minutes long. Tell me what year it's from. It's not a quiz. I just forgot to write it down. 1920. Um, it, but it really functions for you as a kind of master text of what's to follow both kind of artistically and even personally for Keaton. So can you tell us a little bit about One Week? That is not a film I had seen before I read your book. Oh, I'm glad. Was, I'm glad the book induced you to I, see it. It's great. I literally it? put the book down and just went to YouTube, and I was like, I think I get the feeling I cannot move forward with this book until I watch one week. And I, I, I you know, it was certainly worth the 20 minute investment because it's not only is it really funny, but you do come back to it as this kind of important uh, expression of Keaton's vision. Yeah, I think I tell you in the book to, to put the book down and go and go watch oh, it. Then at that that's moment, why I did it. Yeah. <laughs> you are I'm a very obedient orders. reader. I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the reason I do that is because the last gag of one week is just so funny. I didn't want to just describe it and spoil it. I wanted whoever was watching the movie to have it fresh in their mind as they were reading. Um, yeah, I mean, one week isn't the only place in the book where I take a film of Keaton's and kind of interpret it as a text about his life and about history, but but it is one of the major 
ones, one of the major turning points. And that's for a few reasons. I mean, it's it's the first release from his independent studio, from the Buster Keaton studio, which got started in 1920. So essentially after his Arbuckle apprenticeship years, 1917 to 1920, he inherits Arbuckle studio because Arbuckle moves on to make feature films. This is still before the scandal. And, uh, and the very first film that he releases, not makes, but chooses to release as the kind of flagship release is is one week, which I think is just, it's just one of the great directorial debuts in American film history. I mean, it's just, it's such a perfectly structured, it, as you say, it's only 20 minutes long, but it gets, it gets it done. You know, it's a great romantic comedy. It has unbelievable stunts and jokes and sets and, you know, the things that he would later become famous for these kind of rigged houses and, you know, props that do crazy things and using the, um, the space around him to, to find ways to make gags, right? I mean, there's just jokes about everything, everything to do with building a house in that movie. And the premise of the film is that this young couple, these newlyweds, get a gift, a wedding gift that is a, a home kit, which was something that was very popular at the time. In fact, at its peak of popularity in the 20s, uh, like the Sears Modern Home Catalog. And there were many other catalogs like that where you could get an entire house shipped to you by rail in parts, right? All the all the boards, all the nails, everything you needed to frame the windows. And in that time, normally you would hire a crew to build the house for you, but Keaton's imagination has it, you know, it's almost a metaphor for marriage. What if this young couple were to build the house, just the two of them together, right? But what if a romantic rival who had wished that he had married the young woman um, switched the numbers on the boxes so that the house they build is this crazy cockeyed thing that kind of keeps trying to, to destroy itself. And finally, at the end of the film, it does. So, I wanted to look at that for a few reasons. I mean, for one thing, I became fascinated, just as I had with the Pancake House, about kit homes and the popularity of kit homes and and what that meant about you know um, America at that moment. 1920, it so happens, is also the year that in the census, the U.S. census, that there, for the very first time, there's more people living in cities than living in rural areas. It's sort of the, the year that America became urban. And you'll see that in a lot of histories of the U.S., that 1920 is marked as that year. But I feel like that kind of plays out in one week in a way, because it's a movie about homesteading. You know, it's a movie about um, a starter kit for a couple and what it means to to build your own home together. So that part of it was interesting. And then there were just all these resonances with Keaton's own life and uh, and with his own search for a home, which really went on until he was in his, I guess, mid 50s and finally bought the, the last home that he would live in with his third wife and had ha a very happy decade there with her. But up until then, he had really been a very peripatetic person in his life. He grew up on trains almost entirely because he was a vaudeville kid comedian traveling with his family. Uh, so didn't really have a lasting home throughout his entire childhood. The closest he had was this kind of summer cottage that his family eventually got in, a, in an actor's colony in Michigan. Um, and then throughout his young adulthood was and there's a whole chapter about this, was always trading up houses, essentially flipping houses uh, with his first wife, you know, as they ascended in the Hollywood hierarchy and eventually built this huge villa um, on a, a hill in Beverly Hills that was one of the kind of great movie star mansions of the 20s. You know, then obviously when his career fell apart, that had to be sold. I just see his whole life as this, you know, cycling through different structures that are always failing him. And that's enacted in his movies over and over again in one week. And in the famous collapsing house stunt in Steamboat Bill Jr., you just always see him building these structures that are not reliable or dependable. And the built world for Keaton is always this untrustworthy place. And I wanted to investigate that. And the really obsession with that in his work, I could hardly think of a movie of his that doesn't have some sort of collapsing set or disappearing house or, you know, something a, a jail slides into the into the water with his father in it and Steamboat Bill Jr. And he's got to rescue him from the water. Just built environments are not a trustworthy place for Keaton. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. That's certainly true about... I like that you're sort of segueing me to the next question I wanted to ask you, which was sort of looking at his body of work as a whole, because we don't have time to get sort of walk through all his entire filmography. So I was wondering if you could pick 
a few representative Keaton films, and I'm going to give you some potential guidelines, maybe one that's really like very funny and or very sort of um, thrilling because, you know, Keaton is in in many ways sort of an, an action star as much as he is a comedy star in terms of his very impressive stunts that as you sort of as you explore, kind of make people laugh as they as they gasp at the kind of anxious laughter sometimes um, at the ways that he put his body at risk, both when he was a child actor being thrown around by his father, but also in his film career. Uh, so one that's like rip-roaring good time, one that you feel like maybe is your desert island pick, the one that captures how deep and heartfelt his comedy can be, and then the worst one. The really bad one. <laughs> okay, those are great. Those are those, that's a, those are good directives. Um, I actually have two answers for the first one. If you want just something that's funny and rip roaring and makes you gasp at the things that you know his body could do and his mind could dream up, I have a short and a feature. The short is Cops, which is along with One Week probably considered kind of the greatest of his his shorts. Um, short being you know a two reel twenty minute movie, which was a whole standard comedy format at the time. Um, so Cops would be my short. For that. And if you want to see a feature that has some of that gasp-worthy action, I guess I would say the general. I mean, it's the most commonly screened Keaton feature, so I almost hesitate to name it because it's something that you're most likely to have seen anyway. But it really does have some, some stunts that are beyond belief. And the way that he imagines this train chase, which is what the movie is all about, right? A train chase that moves in one direction for the first half of the movie and then reverses direction and moves the other way um, is just something that only he could have imagined. And there's a few stunts in that, I won't spoil what they are, that that do cause that laugh-gasp combination that was the Keaton trademark. Uh, my Desert Island pick, and this, this movie gets a whole chapter in the book, would probably be Steamboat Bill Jr., which is his last independent movie, um, his last movie before he signs this disastrous contract with MGM in 1927 that effectively ended his creative independence. And Steamboat Bill Jr. is just, it's special to me because it feels like the end of a, a cycle for him. I feel like even if he had gone on making his own independent films after that, he would have maybe taken on different subject matter or started to change his focus because it almost feels like he's resolving questions that he had been struggling with, not struggling with, but trying to represent, you know, for his whole career in film, including fathers and relationships with fathers or father-like figures because um, because it is essentially a father-son love story, Steamboat Bill Jr., and has many, many resonances of his own relationship with his sometimes abusive and alcoholic father. Uh, and and, and the, that, the, those images of houses that I mentioned, you know, those images of, of cities and, and shelters falling apart and failing us, that's exactly what the unbelievably uh, funny and exciting climax of Steamboat Bill Jr. is all about, which is the famous hurricane scene where not only that house collapses over him, in that you know image that you can see repeated in gifs on Twitter every single day. I mean, if if he ever comes up, you see that image of the house frame falling. But people don't put that in, in the context that that happens at the, in this entire sequence of just you know utter madness of of wind machines blowing and you know him grabbing a tree that's then lifted up by the wind machines and dumped into a river and you know the jail that I mentioned, jailhouse with his father in it that slides into the water. Just a real. Um, delirious finale of, of collapsing houses. And that just feels to me like he's almost putting a point on a certain uh, series of obsessions that he had throughout his career. So yeah, Steamboat Bill Jr. is a special one to me, but anytime you ask me for a favorite, I'm kind of picking at random. I understand. I really like um, when you talked about cameraman, I think that I had the same favorite scene as the executives or um, who was it who really liked the bathing Oh, yeah. It was Irving, Irving Thalberg at MGM. That's right. Yeah. Um, MGM's Irving Thalberg really liked that. I just I cannot get out of my head the the memory of Buster Keaton's expression when it's clear that the oversized bathing suit has come off in the pool <laughs> because it is such so why it's wildly subtle. Like, I don't know. In a way, you can't see what's happening beneath the water. And he doesn't have sort of an over the top, like expressive expression of shock and embarrassment but just you can tell just in an instant like oh it just came off in the pool he's such a master of facial pantomime yes. you know it's incredible there's that moment yeah he realizes it came off and then the moment that i just i've seen so many audiences crack up over this the moment when he spies the lady whose bathing suit he decides he's gonna steal right and he starts to swim toward her and he I don't know how to describe it, but he turns into a shark, right? Something about the way he moves and the way his face looks, he suddenly becomes this predator. Like, I'm getting that bathing suit off that woman so I don't have to get out of this pool naked. I mean, it's such a 
it's just a, it's a timeless joke. I absolutely love that swimming scene. So we could probably talk a lot about all the uh, the funny memories we have um, of different moments, but we got we got to go dark for a minute. What's the bad one? What's the one that we shouldn't watch? I mean, Although, yeah, I think I can guess what some of those might be for you, and I, I don't know if those are as easy to find even as the yeah as the good ones. But what what is the worst? And that'll sort of help us talk about what sort of the low points of Keaton's professional and personal life. I mean, it depends on whether you want to talk about one of his movies that he made choices for being bad or, you know, something that he was trapped in against his will being bad, because all of the early talkies he made at MGM in the early 30s are bad. But I guess I think I, you get to pick what you want. I guess I would say of his, own, of his own films. I was once on a panel at, at, at the International Buster Keaton Convention, which I've been to a few times and which is a great event where we were supposed to name our our least favorite Keaton movie. And and I think it had to be a movie that did come from his imagination. You know, you couldn't say one of the MGM movies because that in, in some sense is not really his film. And I named The Pale Face, which is one of his shorts. I mean, I think it's just it's one of the more racially painful and grating of his, his movies to watch now. As I write about in the book, and there's a whole chapter about this, there were a few blackface scenes throughout his movies, you know, as there were in many, many movies of the first quarter of the 20th century. And... They are disturbing to watch, but I think the pale face, which has more, you know, red face scenes, it's a movie about about him uh, joining a Native American tribe that kind of adopts him. I mean, in a way, it's a story about him fighting for the rights of this tribe and for their land rights. But almost all of the Native Americans are played by white guys in, you know, some kind of red face or brown face. And unlike the fleeting scenes of blackface that appear in some of his other movies, that's really the theme of the, the whole movie. So even though it's got some really good jokes and stunts in it, it's just painful to watch now, right? I mean, it's just extremely dated and, um, and offensive. So I think the pale face would be up there with least favorites. Although I have to admit, there are some still some jokes in it that make me laugh every time. Uh, and then when we get into his, his, his bad sound movies, it's you know just everything that happened between... 1930 and 1933 at MGM. And those were painful to watch. I mean, that was a part of the research process that I kept putting off. Um, I hadn't seen those movies except in clips. And I knew that I was going to have to watch them to write about them. And once I did start watching them, you know, I had lots to say about them. And and it wasn't too hard to write that chapter or not harder than any other. But to get myself to, to put those movies on, you know, and to watch especially the ones late in his MGM period when, you know, he was sort of visibly falling apart on camera and so miserable in his personal life. That was a painful part of the research. What was it that, I mean, early sound film was kind of a rocky, a rocky transition for a lot of, of a lot of artists and a lot of filmmakers, um, technically, and, and just sort of as, you know, certain performers were finding their footing. Uh, but what was it about Keaton that MGM didn't get or didn't understand because you sort of talk about how Keaton Keaton sort of engineered his own persona as a filmmaker and as a director of stunts and um, when MGM took over he'd sort of been he'd sort of been promised that he was being put in good hands by his brother-in-law um, but he was wrong uh, because he wasn't in good hands the people in charge did not see what what you see in him or what he saw in himself so what did they what were they missing I mean really everything I just it's hard hard for me to think of another example of a performer being as misunderstood by his collaborators as Keaton was in those early 30s movies at MGM I mean they they got him specifically because they needed a comedy star MGM did not specialize in comedy Louis B. Mayer chief of MGM was not particularly fond of comedian or comedians or comics. It was just not his taste. You know, he liked melodramas and and beautiful women and a certain kind of a big glossy, what you think of as an MGM production. I mean, everybody knows even now sort of what an MGM production of classic Hollywood era felt like. And so they got Keaton in order to have a comedian and then just slotted him into their system. You know, their system being something that to a large degree Irving Thalberg came up with. Irving Thalberg being, you know, the, the boy wonder producer who was in charge of Keaton's unit pretty much. Didn't work with him that closely closely on a creative level, but decided who would be plugged into his projects, put it that way. And Irving Thalberg's way of working was just completely antithetical to Keaton's. I mean, the idea was you have a team of writers, you know, over in the writer's building. They will generate a script 
and you know you'll be assigned a director and you do the whole thing uh, not on location but you know on MGM sets whenever possible um obviously the coming of sound locked them down even more right because you you need to be in a sound studio and you need to have a certain kind of lights and certain kind of microphone and it has that static feeling of of early 30s talkies but even when he was doing his first two silence at MGM you know there were just a lot more restrictions on his freedom and creativity than than he was used to having and he did not adjust well to that i mean i not i'm not trying to make him only the victim of MGM because he also just was somebody who handled very poorly, you know, this sudden loss of, of his creative independence. And so, although he managed to make a couple of good silence with MGM, when sound came in, he just, he was, he was really sort of trapped by the system and then, you know, started to drink too much, started to lose this work ethic that had just been, you know, had driven him his whole life. And in fact, would come back to him again. And, and, um, and he would, once again, be somebody who was on the job, you know, doing what he was supposed to do, trying to make good comedy. But there was this brief period where, as he himself put it, I didn't care if school kept or not. You know, there was just a moment that he he started to skip out, not show up on set, you know, leave on drinking binges, um, you know, womanize. He just he was a real mess for a few years and did not handle his um, that transition well at all. Yeah. And I remember you say he sort of becomes Elmer, this figure he's named Elmer in a lot of the movies. Yeah, that was a character then, created by MGM. They they essentially yeah. decided, you know, he needs a, he needs a different persona and instead of, you know, sort of letting him create the persona as he always had, they created this character named Elmer, at least he's named Elmer in in most of the MGM movies, who's kind of a rube. You know, he's he's kind of a dumbbell, just all of these qualities that Keaton had of um a certain kind of naivete or simplicity. They Overinterpreted, misinterpreted as just being dumb, you know. And so there's a lot of scenes where he's kind of being tricked by other people, or he kind of passively goes along with other people's schemes. And it's to me, it was taking you know some of the most beautiful elements of his persona and twisting them into something that really had nothing to do with it. Yeah, I think that. I mean, I think that maybe. And you write about this, but the kind of the blank faceness, they saw that as stupidity. But when you actually watch his films, it, there's a lot going on. And the smallest movement on his face conveys how much he is understanding or plotting or trying to hide. Um, and it seems like nobody was watching him very carefully. Um, or like you said, um, the studio was not really invested in developing their comedy talent. They just needed to have someone there at the table and, you know, have someone representing the the comedy contingent um so he went through this really steep decline uh and after but after this slump he managed to pull himself out and i think that was a combination of personal uh personal i don't even know it's like happiness uh a, a, a third marriage that really took and with, with a very supportive partner uh but also um, new opportunities that presented themselves. Can you talk about sort of his post-MGM renaissance? Uh, what you think like were some of that, how Keaton was able to sort of return to himself as an artist, by both by your estimation and sort of in his own mind, what was the work that he did after after MGM that was meaningful and his favorite? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's two phases to that. There's there's two MGM periods that he has, and the second one, which I, I write about in conjunction with F. Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist who also worked for MGM at the same time. Keaton's second incarnation at MGM was that after you know those ignominious years of making really bad but successful, financially successful talkies for them, he gets fired in 1933. Um, you know, goes into this deep spiral of depression drinking, you know, just a really horrible few lost years where he also marries his sobriety nurse, this woman who was assigned to keep him from drinking, uh, winds up being his second wife. And she's kind of a shady figure. And they have this kind of awful two years together. But after he gets through that rocky period and gets sober, more or less, for what sober meant, you know, for him and for 1935, uh, after 1935, he starts to put his life back together, eventually goes back to work at MGM behind the scenes as a gag writer and uh, and kind of keeps his head down. You know, I think he was he was a good employee in that second um, era, but he was not obviously in front of the camera. He was writing material for people like the Marx Brothers or Red Skelton. You know, he was who's creating gags. Judy Garland. He also wrote some physical comedy for and um, 
and even directed it sometimes. You know, he would be there on set kind of choreographing the comedy and making it work. So that second period to me is almost it's, it's, it's a period of healing for him. You know, it's a very modern word to put on it, but it's a moment when he's kind of getting back his confidence, um, as you say, happily married after 1940 to his third wife, Eleanor Keaton, and putting things back together. But it's not until TV comes along in the late 1940s and early 1950s that he really has a career resurgence. And this was a fun part of the book to write because I wasn't that familiar with the TV he had done. I mean, I knew that he had a guest appearance on The Twilight Zone and he had been on Candid Camera and I'd seen those things on YouTube, but I didn't sort of realize that he was really a ubiquitous presence on TV in the 1950s, you know, whether it was doing guest spots on variety shows like Ed Sullivan or playing a character in a sitcom. He was on the Donna Reed show twice. You know, he's just, I feel like you probably, you couldn't turn on your TV in the 1950s without seeing him in a commercial or in a, you know, guest spot or something. And it was a, a really great period for him. I think he loved TV. As I talk about in the book, he liked to watch TV. He was a very early adopter of technology in general. And he liked the possibilities of what, you know, TV could be, for example, live performances, which were a really big thing in the early days of television. I wonder if he was drawn at all to sort of 1950s television in that it had that kind of um, Wild West experimental openness of his sort of of 1920s film, that there was this kind of, you know, just openness about what it could be and making it quickly. And it wasn't, you know, it took a little while for television to become kind of organized and absorbed into like the Hollywood machine so i'm sort of picturing picturing him watching the vaudeo stars and being like yeah that's a good time <laughs> yeah i recognize this this is all this is all really legible to me uh reminding him of sort of his own artistry and his own yeah like his own heyday i hate to say heyday that makes it sound like everything he did afterward wasn't as good but certainly sort of his 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 masterpieces that came out of the 1920s um and the last sort of question i have about him is um you know, just like Mabel Norman's work was only recovered and preserved through the work of scholars of, you know, women film pioneers. And um, Buster Keaton's work could also have sort of fallen into something of a like an archival hole had it not been for people like his wife and other historians that were committed to recovering him and sort of reinstituting him into the historical pantheon a lot you know um trying to find the the word for that um but i guess i want to ask sort of how did buster keaton's work get preserved and and promoted and sort of after his death in 1966 yeah i mean it started this all started to happen long before he died and i trace that in the book a bit the critical rediscovery of his work which really started in 1949 with this essay by James Agee, the film critic for both time yeah. and life in different periods. But this piece was for life. And he wrote this article. I mean, it's, it's funny in our day to imagine an article by a film critic being something that's so influential, but it really was. It had a section on Chaplin, on Keaton, on Lloyd, and also on Harry Langdon. Um, but really it was, it was just a, uh, a kind of song of praise for that period and for the importance of rediscovering our own film history because those films had so fallen, with the exception of Chaplin, I guess, who always remained popular and beloved, those early films. Uh, those movies had kind of fallen out of favor. They weren't shown. They weren't saved. Nobody cared about preserving them, including Keaton himself. You know, unlike Chaplin and Lloyd, he didn't own the copyright on his films. He didn't even own stock in his own studio when he had one. He was just a terrible businessman and, and didn't really think about what the future of those films would be. He was certainly not an archivist of his own work. Um, but that that article started to kick off a new generation of interest in silent films, um, and people started to discover them more. And then during Keaton's own life, I think this would have been in the early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, uh, he crossed paths with this young, I guess you'd call him an archivist, but a collector of, of silent movies named Raymond Rohauer. And this guy was trying to round up all the silent films that he could and essentially slap his own name on them and profit from them. He was a profiteer and was called the vulture of Hollywood by, by some who didn't like him, including Keaton. But he was very useful to the Keatons, to Buster and Eleanor, because he really set about with great energy trying to find the films that had been lost and you know, get the rights to them 
and get them distributed and shown. And so by the time Keaton died, not all his films had been found. There were still some missing ones that were found later after he died, but he was starting to realize that there would be an afterlife and a legacy for his work. And that must have made him very happy. He was not the kind of guy who would be extremely verbal about that fact, but there's a story of him going to the Venice Film Festival in the last year of his life, um, not con connected with his own films, but connected with this this uh, Samuel Beckett scripted short film that he was in, kind of an avant-garde movie, a very strange thing for him to appear in at that moment in his life. And the Samuel Beckett movie was not uh, enjoyed at the festival at all. I think it was booed. But when he got up to take the podium afterwards, he got a five-minute standing ovation. And, um, and he had tears in his eyes as he thanked people at the festival. And that moment always makes me feel like he knew. You know, he only died a few months after that. But he... I'm sure that he died knowing that, you know, his, his work was beloved and that it would outlive him. That's really, that's, that's a lovely way to close our conversation about Keaton. I want to thank you, Dana, for joining me. But before we go, I just want to give you the opportunity to uh, give us any preview of uh, upcoming work or future events for your book or anything you're doing for Slate, anything you want listeners to be aware of and to watch out for. Ah, thank you for the opportunity for that. I mean, I wish I could say another book is in the works, but the fact is this one is too new. It's 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 violent to even contemplate doing this over again. And right now my main interest is getting the word about this book out and getting people to read it because it was a lot of years of my life and I almost forgot in that process. I think this must be common. I'm a first-time author, so I don't know, but I almost forgot that it was for other people. <laughs> you know, it was sort of like I just want to get it done so, you know, my editor will be happy. <laughs> <laughs> the the idea that it would actually connect ideas in my brain to ideas in other people's brains, which is, of course, the point of writing anything, uh, had almost been lost to me by the time it came out. So it's been an incredible pleasure seeing it connect with people and, you know, hearing just from from readers all around the world about it. But I guess the thing that I would promote would just be the book tour, such as it is. I, I keep getting invited to places and not all these things are firmed up, but uh, but it looks like I'll be going to Austin to Chicago, maybe to the Bay Area. I hope to LA. I mean, essentially, anybody who will invite me to come do a reading, you know, if I can figure out a way to swing it financially with that institution, I will do it. So if you want to look at my book tour and the places I'm going, you could visit my Twitter page, which is at The High Sign, The High Sign being the title of a Buster Keaton short. Um, and you can see the upcoming tour dates there. So I guess that would be my, my promotion. But really my promotion is just read this book and watch the Keaton movies as you go along. You should, as a, as a you know, um, as someone who didn't write the book, I can tell you with an, un, an, and I don't get any financial kickback from this, you should definitely read Dana Stevens's Cameraman. It's fabulous. Oh, thank it's you. So interesting. And you'll learn a ton. And even if you do know about film history, you'll learn so much about everything that was happening around it. And you'll get to figure, you'll sort of be addressed to familiar characters in new and exciting ways. So thank you again, Dana. It's been great. You've been listening to Dana Stevens, author of Cameraman. Um, I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books Network in Film. Have a good day. <laughs>